Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Traveling thoughtfully through Africa can be challenging. It seems to me the best trip would let you learn about the local culture, get up close to the animals in their native habitat, and, at the same time, use your dollars to support fragile and indigenous communities struggling to adapt to our changing world. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning about the Maasai people, whose traditional lifestyles and environment are under serious threat in East Africa. We'll learn how you can be welcomed into Maasai land while being sensitive to local needs. Kurt Kutai runs a wilderness expedition company in Seattle, and Matami Dupash is a Maasai guide. As a Maasai person, what's lacking in a lot of safari programs is adequate information to inform tourists about what they should expect to see. Kurt and Matami join us to explain how you can enjoy the adventure of a lifetime in Maasai land. It's safari time in East Africa on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning about the Maasai people whose traditional lifestyles and environment are under serious threat in East Africa. They've recently suffered drought and famine. And as a traditionally nomadic people, their culture is threatened by the modern world. We'll learn how you can be welcomed into Maasai land while being sensitive to local needs. First, let's see what your travel plans are as we open the phones and email. 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you join in the action on Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking travel, and we've got Misha on the line from Eugene, Oregon. Hi, Misha. Hi, Rick. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for your call. My husband and I are very excited to be traveling to Belgium and Germany with the recommendations for bed and breakfast that are in your guidebooks. But neither of us do very well with heavy breakfast. Right. So we were wondering if you have a recommendation on how to communicate that we just like something light but substantial. Well, first of all, anybody in the bed and breakfast business in Germany or Belgium would speak English, and uh, it's modern these days not to be heavy eating and eating a lot of, uh, you know, f- fried, uh, greasy breakfast food. So there's always going to be uh, an ab- abundant table of uh, beautiful breakfast food out, and much of it will be healthy food, and you just need to pick and choose the way you like, basically. Okay. Does well, that, that sounds great. Does that make sense? Uh, 20 years ago would have been a big difference. 20 years ago in, in Britain, you'd get a, a horribly greasy breakfast with no alternative. A lot of people called it a heart attack on a plate. And mm-hmm. 20 years ago in Belgium and Germany, you'd get a roll and a cup of coffee, and that was it. Uh, mm-hmm. Today in Germany, you won't get the fried bacon and egg breakfast like you'd find in Britain, but you would get yogurt and uh, beautiful cheese and, and meat cold cuts and gorgeous fresh bread. The only frustration for me in the B&Bs in those countries is they're so committed to the quality that they won't serve breakfast until they've had a chance to run out to the bakery and get the freshest bread. So mm-hmm. sometimes the breakfast is not um, won't, won't work with your schedule if you want to get a real early start. But uh, it's generally included in the cost of the room, and it's generally... Uh, beautiful meal. In fact, a lot of places, uh, if you ask, they they actually have a foil where you can uh, actually make a sandwich and take it away for lunch. Nice. Well, I'm very looking forward to staying at the B&Bs and I sure appreciate all the recommendations. I look forward to meeting the people. Good luck. You know, that's the bottom line when you stay in B&Bs is meeting the people. Good luck, Misha, on your trip yeah. and let us know how it goes. Thank you, Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Mary Lou in Sutton, Nebraska. Hi, Mary Lou. Hello, Rick. Pleased to talk to you. I know you've been talking to Fromers, who wrote the guide on the $5 a day. Yeah. I wonder what you would recommend nowadays as an amount to budget for a day trip like that when you're roaming around on your own. Well, it's certainly not $5 a day anymore, oh, is it? <laughs> no, I don't think you get anything for $5 not anymore. Much. We had a great time talking with Arthur Fromer, and uh, if you're curious, uh, you know, you can always... Uh, check that out on our archive. I should remind all of our listeners that we've got hours and hours, months and months of this radio show available anytime for free at uh, ricksteves.com. I enjoy talking with Arthur because he's sort of the, my mentor and the granddaddy of all of this independent travel. He wrote the, the first book that opened that made Europe accessible to uh, regular working-class people who wanted to broaden their perspectives through travel, and all, Arthur's very committed to the value of travel that way. Uh, when Arthur was writing in the early 60s, it was $5 a day. My first trips were on $5 a day. My son just went to Europe uh, this last year on the 
typical teenage Europe through the gutter kind of adventure. And he managed fine, uh, Mary Lou, on $50 a day plus his rail pass. Now that is really the bottom end, cheapest way that you can go and still be safe and eat and sleep, you know, get eight hours of sleep and three square meals a day, 50 bucks a day. And that's not very realistic for most adults. But if you had to do it that way, that's the vagabond budget, the youth hostel budget and picnics and so on. What is a, an adult budget? Well, I would say two people traveling together, $100 a day for room and board that per person. That means $200 a day for the couple. Basically, $120 for the, the hotel, and that would be 60 bucks per person, including breakfast. And then you'd have oh, $15 for lunch, $20 for dinner, and that leaves you $5 for cappuccino and gelato. And uh, that rounds out to about 100 bucks a day. On top of that, you got your sightseeing and your transportation. That's a realistic target, I would say, uh, Mary Lou, if you're planning a trip. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. I figured, you know, I thought it had to be at least $100 a day and now with today's inflation and stuff. So it just gives me a good idea on what to plan for. Yeah, now I would remind you... Um, it's uh, it's cheaper if you stay in one spot uh, longer. You know, you could get a, a rent places by the week. It's quite a bit less expensive. Uh, and when you rent places by the week, you get a kitchen where you can cook for the price of groceries. And groceries are essentially the same cost there as they are here. So you can add that up quite easily. But when yeah, you go all the way to Europe... that's about what I was planning to do with the stay in one area and explore from there out and yeah. go around. Sounds great. Well, good luck on your trip. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Pleasure talking to you. Goodbye. Bye now. We're at 877-333-RICK, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Garrett in Fircrest, Washington, emailed us, and he writes, high school, he's a high school senior backpacking in Europe with two friends to go to the World Cup soccer game in Germany and visit relatives in southern France. Rail pass seems to be very expensive. Um, what's the best way to keep ticket prices cheap, and should they reserve youth hostel space online? Uh, Garrett, uh, the youth hostels, uh, first of all, you'll want to reserve the youth hostels online. They're all very good with their web booking services, so take advantage of that because you're going to be traveling in the summer during uh, World Cup time. It'll be quite crowded, so you'll want to nail that down in advance. As far as rail passes go, it's expensive to travel in Europe. They uh, have invested a lot in their rail systems, and it's quite costly to take the rail passes. You need to just... Um, I think you need to get online and figure out what the point-to-point -point ticket costs would be if you bought them as you went and then compare that to um, buying, uh, buying a rail pass. You'll find that you need to travel a fair amount to justify the purchase of a one-month Euro pass. From my calculations, if you're going to travel, let's say, from oh, uh, Amsterdam to Madrid to Rome and back to Amsterdam, that is more than enough travel to justify the purchase of a one-month year rail pass. Remember, these days you, you can save a lot of money when it comes to rail pass purchase by not buying the standard 17-day pass, but buying tailoring it to your travel plans. And if you're visiting three or four countries, you can pay for just those three or four countries. And rather than getting 30 days in a row, they have something called a flexi pass, which gives you the flexibility and the economy of buying single days out of a two-month window. So you could, for instance, pay for eight days out of a two-month window in these particular three or four countries and then you're tailoring the pass to your travel plans and saving a lot of money. Barbara in Portland, Oregon writes, uh, when making copies of your credit cards for safety, how many copies should you make and where should you keep them while you travel? You know, I take a copy of my credit card and passport and plane ticket and everything and I leave it at home with somebody I can get in touch with if I lose all my valuables in Europe and then I'm just one phone call away from replacement. They could fax it to me from wherever I am. I think you'd want to be careful about having a photocopy of all those valuables laying around in your luggage because ironically you do that for safety reasons. Somebody could take that from you and you might find yourself in a jam because of that. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling to East Africa, specifically Maasailand in Kenya and Tanzania. I have with me uh, two men who work uh, taking Americans around the Maasai country to give people an insight into the culture and the fascinating wildlife. We have Kurt Kutai, who runs Wildland Adventures, and his uh, Maasai friend, Metame Dapash. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Now, uh, the Maasai people live... Uh, is is Kenya and Tanzania, are those just modern creations and there's uh, ethnic groups that ignore those political boundaries? Yes, um, uh, that 
you know, Kenya and Tanzania, of course, didn't exist before the arrival of, um, you know, the colonial governments. Yeah. Um, now they are two political entities, two states, different, different from each other in many ways. So is this, is this a big problem in Africa where the ethnic borders are different than the political borders? Um, in some respects, but uh, the Maasai obviously have challenges trying to uh, live on both sides of the borders and uh, of the border, and you know their families on this side and that side, and it's it's not easy. Is the Maasai tribe traditionally a nomadic tribe? Yes, pretty much. We are nomadic people. We um, keep livestock and we right. move from place to place as dictated by uh, changes in climate. To me, it seems like nomadic people are sort of, um, they don't fit the modern mold. But normally, governments don't want people to be nomadic. They want them to own land and stay put. Is, is that your impression? When I think about Kurdish nomads in Turkey or something, you know, I, I know they, they buy them schools and they buy them homes and the people don't want the schools and don't want the homes. They want to be moving with their cattle with the seasons and so on. Is, is that a similar dynamic in Africa? Um, I, I can't talk for the whole of Africa, but for the Maasai people, um, I mean, you need a lot of land and you need a lot of space to be able to take care of, you know, livestock, which you need for survival. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, settling people down and, you know, making restrictions on the movements, obviously, are not um, conducive to their, to their survival. So there is this uh, tension or this struggle going on in maintaining your traditional lifestyles, but but also fitting the modern uh society? Uh, there is, and it's a challenge because, um, you know, uh, wanting to settle people whose land is not very productive and they are not crop uh, producers, you know, it's not easy at all. You need to be able to move to for the sake of preserving the environment and to make sure that the land is not uh, over-exploited. Uh, right. It's a fragile situation. It's very fragile. Now, as a tourist, I would want to go to uh, Kenya, and I would want to see the beautiful animals and have a safari, and I'd also want to connect with the local culture. Is that something that's uh, reasonable to do uh, if I'm an American tourist taking one of your tours, for instance, Kurt? Absolutely. I mean, that... Uh you know, in Kenya and, and Tanzania, East African general culture is much more can be much more part of the safari experience than, say, even in Southern Africa, where the natural areas are more isolated from communities. So it's easy to integrate, but what has to what one has to be careful is how that's conducted, who they go with, because there's really a lot of commercial tourism that, in fact, takes advantage of native people who are traditionally marginalized from society and and really aren't part of the economic structure of the tourism industry. So we're trying to, and there are a number of other companies who are you know, truly making efforts to integrate indigenous people into tourism so they can benefit more. Would you say there's two kinds of American uh, tourists to Eastern Africa, those who just want to see animals and those who want to have a cultural uh, experience as well? Or does everybody want to have the best of both worlds there? No, not, every, not everybody wants the best. I think most people go to see the wildlife. But right. truly, I think, I would say the majority of tourists, if they take the opportunity and have the opportunity to have the, an authentic kind of cultural experience, I find that when they come back, wildlife is great, but their most meaningful memories of their safari were the encounters they had with African people. Wow. More in a minute as we learn about the Maasai of East Africa on Travel with Rick Steves, 877-333-RICK, or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning about the Maasai people of East Africa. How can we visit Kenya and Tanzania in a culturally sensitive way while using our tourist dollars to help the locals address some of the challenges they're facing? Our guests are here to tell us. Kurt Kutai runs the tour company Wildland Adventures, and Matami Dupash is a Maasai guide who works for Kurt, helping visitors travel through his homeland. Metame, you see Americans coming in. How, how, what would you advise me if I want to connect with Maasai culture and not just be like going to the, some sort of a museum and seeing a traditional dancing on stage or something, but I really want to make friends with some Maasai people? Uh, how would I do that? Well, um, first of all, I think uh, what's lacking in a lot of uh, tourism, I mean safari programs, is, is adequate information to inform um, tourists about what they should expect to see and how they can you know, engage in a, a culturally and friendly program or, or safari. Um, as a Maasai person, um, I would advise you to truly try and look out for a company that is sensitive to the culture of the people, the environment, and the tourism industry in that country has totally failed, actually, to educate tourists. And, and that has led to exploitation and, and so, okay, cultural so tell abuse me about and the, so forth. Tell me an example of a, of a crass kind of uh, uh, invasive tourism that's going there. And what's the bad example of a tour company going to uh, on a safari in East Africa? Uh, a bad example is a company going in there um, without invitation of the community, taking photographs of the people in a very indecent manner, um, driving off the road, harassing wildlife, mm. and just total disregard for the people's uh, way of life and culture. Does this happen? It's happening. Yeah, I mean, the other one is, you know, drivers who go into a Maasai village, take fees from the customers, say $20 to visit a village, then and the customers actually give the money to a representative in the village then another representative of the village takes the tourists around while that first person who collected the money goes back to the driver, pays them $15 or more, and leaves very little for the, for the village itself. And this is all prearranged. And so we've been trying to break that, uh, that, that system. We've got people on the line that want to learn more about Maasai culture and uh, safaris in East Africa. Jim from Davis, Georgia, thanks for your call. Uh, how are you, Rick? Uh, we uh, appreciate this uh, and are enjoying the show. Uh, my wife and I are going to be in Kenya um, in the middle part of the year to the end of the year sometime, uh, actually on a church trip, and we wanted to find out, or I wanted to ask you, what would be the perfect Rick Steves-type photo trip to Kenya? Jim, how many days do you have for your vacation? Uh, that's kind of... that. that that probably would be flexible, but I'm guessing up to 10. 10 days. Well, first of all, you want to try to maximize the diversity of habitats that you visit. Uh, so on a photo trip, for example, just in terms of landscapes and wildlife that you'll see. So you can you can actually go up north into the Samburu region, which is a more, more arid desert-type habitat. Certain species of uh, the giraffe and zebra, for example, that you don't find that are different, I should say, in southern Kenya and Tanzania. And then you can move your way south um, into, say, uh, Nakuru, which is a, a Soda Lake basin, and uh, where you see a lot of leopard, for example, as well as a variety of other uh, animals. And continuing then s- further south from there would be the Maasai Mara. And that would be a lot to see in a matter of one week. You would probably use a combination of flights and, via- and a driver guide to take you to, to do that. So three stops with flights in between, and you'd have a guide driver meet you in each place. Yeah, as far as the Rick Steve style, I think, you know, getting a good driver guide where you're sort of mm. doing a more independent kind of trip, mm. it's, it's really hard to know, though, you know, to get the right driver. Because to do it in that same style, as I was saying before, you have to have a, a driver who is culturally sensitive and is, is not just focused on getting you to see the big five and getting your pictures. And as a photographer, you need to make sure you give good instructions to your driver that your intention is not just to get the pictures, you know, so you give him the tips, but you want to get to know local people. You know, I've, I've found that in uh, the, the developing world, it's oftentimes cheaper to rent a car with a driver than to rent a car without a driver uh, because of insurance costs and so on. And uh, my driver has been my, my, my sidekick, my, my, uh, 
my uh, guy who opens doors, my teacher, and my driver. Uh, it's just been a wonderful thing. But as Kurt says, you've got to get a good driver. And that's tough. Now, the alternative would be to take a tour, like the tours that, that Kurt uh, puts together. And I suppose if you've got limited time, you could uh, sort through uh, the catalogs of various tour companies that have the right approach to East Africa and uh, weigh that against going on your own. You know, you, you were mentioning, uh, Jim, the Rick Steves approach. I'm, I'm very um, in favor of independent travel, in, uh, especially in Europe and in much of the world. But there are cases where having a, a local guide, especially a small, intimate kind of tour, if it's the right style of tour, can, uh, can be a better value. Let me add one other thing, too. I should say in Africa... Um, you know, there's a lot of companies that do independent travel. They range independent travel. So you, just because you go with a company doesn't mean you have to be with a group. That's a good point. Jim, thanks for your call. Great. Thank you. You bet. Now, Metame, you're the director of the Maasai Environmental Resource Coalition. Yes, sir. What is that? Uh, Mark works on um, a wide variety of issues affecting the Maasai people, ranging from providing clean water to a uh, scholarship for Maasai children who want education. Um, to mm. environmental conservation. We are very, very strong um, on protecting Maasai land, you know, for not only the Maasai people, but for the generations of the world. I, I would think there are indigenous ways of life in Africa that, that really are endangered. Yes. Would you say the Maasai are endangered? The Maasai are very endangered. In fact, uh, they've been listed by... Um, um, the, I think the United Nations uh, Working Group on Indigenous Peoples is one of the most endangered uh, indigenous communities. So teach me, who are the Maasai and what is unique about them compared to people who are neighboring tribes? Well, the Maasai, uh, as, as you said earlier on, are nomadic people. Uh, 90% of the Maasai still live the way they have done for centuries. And um, development, government uh, development policies have completely cut them out of, uh, you know, their plan. And therefore, because of that, they are marginalized people. They, are, they have little access to education, little access to health care, and just really very vulnerable to insensitive mm -hmm. uh, uh, development and conservation policies. And you're unusual then because you're obviously well-educated. How did you become so well-educated in a society that's mostly uh, herding and nomadic? Well, by default rather than by design. But, you know, uh, I was just one of those lucky people. Who okay. had he, didn't know how to, he didn't know how to herd his goats as well as the other kids. So his dad said, send oh. him off to school. <laughs> oh, school. <laughs> All right. Hey, what is, the, um, wh what is the story of the AIDS epidemic as far as that relates to the Maasai people? Well, um, uh, AIDS a pro it's a problem everywhere. Uh, I understand you know, in, in Kenya, Africa, what, 3,000 people a day are dying of AIDS. It's like a 9-11 every day in Africa because of AIDS. Yes. In, yes. Are the Maasai as, uh, as hurt by that as the rest of the people in Africa? Well, let me just say that um, there is very, very little information available about uh, AIDS uh, uh, pandemic in Maasai people. And it's because, uh, all in all honesty, I mean, there is very, very little education or even testing going on amongst the Maasai people. So we After cannot, so many years, there's not uh, much progress in that regard. There is regard. very little going on there. Wow. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Um, I think it's just, you know, government policies that are, you know, short-sighted and, and they do not really embrace, um, you know, the diversity and the remoteness of, uh, you know, some communities. Excuse me for asking, but there is this, this also this ugly image of Africa that anthropology students know about. Um, I think Maasai and other tribes that have uh, teenage circumcision rituals for boys and for girls. Uh, tell me what the, the, the modern situation is for uh, the circumcision of, of young women. Well, uh, it's, I can't deny that it's still going on in, in many parts of Maasai land and um, in areas where people have uh, gotten access to, you know, modern, um, uh, you know, lifestyles is, is, is going down drastically. So there's sort of, there's super traditional elements of your community and there are modern yes. elements. Yes, And in the traditional elements, no, the, the traditional half of the Maasai people? About 70%. 70%. And this female circumcision would still be the, a standard sort of thing? Yes. And uh, from the modern perspective, is it as um, horrifying as it is to me in the United States? Well, I don't know whether I would say horrifying, really. Uh, I mean, I'm, I might be ethnocentric about that because I don't really understand. I have a pretty simplistic idea about what goes on, but it, it just sounds like a, a woman's uh, clitoris is cut out and then sewn back together, and it um, makes her supposed to be more enjoyable for the men. 
Well, I don't know if that's a description of, uh, um, you know, circumcision of women in Maasailand. Um, what, what I know is it's going on in some parts of Maasailand and right. it has stopped in some places. Now, if you're asking my opinion whether um, it's desirable or not, um, I would say it's not. But um, mm-hmm. those who are working to stop female circumcision, um, I just think that they are, they are using culturally... Um, incompetent approaches, and that's why they're not making a lot of progress. So there is a challenge for the Maasai people to uh, deal with their ec- environmental problems, to uh, deal with AIDS, to deal with um, what kind of uh, parts of their traditional lifestyle are going to be maintained and nurtured, and what parts will be compromised to join the, the uh, just the 21st century. Yeah, one thing about the Maasai, I think, that is benefited from them is they are not afraid to interact with outsiders. I mean, they're very smart, aware people of what's happening in the world. So while they want to retain many of their traditional values and lifestyles, they're also recognizing ways in which they can be integra- integrate themselves into yeah. modern society, yes. which in a sense is self-protection. And that's the challenge of nomadic societies all over the planet right now, I think. And what a great opportunity for, for travelers to be able to uh, learn about the Maasai culture through their travels and through meeting people like uh, Metame and so on. So a, a traveler really can find himself welcome in a Maasai village. Uh, is it possible to travel ind- independently into these, or must you take a tour? I think really like going to visit somebody down the street, you know, you don't just go calling them unannounced. Mm-hmm. And so in tourism... Uh, it's better to go in a program that uh, is going to be accepted by any partic- by a particular so village. There's some sensitivities here that you don't just bull right in there. Yeah, and the problem is there's not right. enough Maasai involved in tourism. So we have drivers from other ethnic groups. Perhaps many of them don't have much respect for other for Maasai culture, and they're not going to be received. So you, they can't, you can't go with them and expect a good reception in a village. Christina from Washington. Hi, Christina. I kind of called in mostly uh, because I just returned from uh, Tanzania and uh, Nairobi uh, two days ago. But I do want to say that I left my husband and his brother behind, who both live here in Seattle, and uh, they're right now on the top of Kilimanjaro. And I choose a competitive company to Kurtz Company simply because um, this company has been in Tanzania the longest, and they are the most sensitive to the local culture that of any company that I found that operates. And, um, and is that the local Seattle company? No. Okay. What, what's the name of that company? No, it's Thompson Safaris. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. how, was, how was your experience there, uh, regardless of the tour, as far as meeting the people and, and seeing the wildlife and uh, enjoying your time? Uh, well, right now, uh, East Africa is extremely dry. They need... They need water. They need rain in the worst way. And I'm doing, you know, the Seattle rain dance around here every night, huh. uh, so that they, so that because the animals are suffering, the people are suffering. Um, we spent a little time in, in Kenya too, especially in Ambuseli, uh, which is so dry that the Maasai people um, are allowed to come in the park with their animals uh, just to drink because uh, everybody's suffering from the drought. There's nothing to eat. The wildebeest. In the in the uh, in Serengeti uh, is not is holding their babies. They're holding the calves, and they can do this for maybe three or four weeks, wow. just waiting for rain so that the mother will have something to eat so she can produce milk. Yeah, Mesa Fernandez, who's a spokesperson for the Kenya Tourist Board, uh, emailed us, and, and she dealt with this uh, uh, climate problem uh, with with these comments. The drought has uh, mainly affected the semi-arid portions of northeastern Kenya along the border with Somalia, Ethiopia, and Sudan, not the entire country. Livestock herds have been affected, and some people are suffering severe food shortages. The Kenya tourist industry has set up a relief fund, and many Maasai who live near national parks and reserves are now depending on tourism to make a living rather than herding their livestock. And due to the drought, many wild animals are staying near the rivers and watering holes in the national parks. So it may actually be easier to see more wildlife on your safaris now. So here's a woman who's promoting tourism in Kenya, giving us these comments. Uh, Kurt, you're kind of smiling. Is this just tourist uh, promotion, or is this good information that she's giving us? Well, it's it's good information on the one hand, but it's only half the half the information. It's not true that it's not affecting the rest of the country. Right. And you look at it, in fact, it's, it's it's unfortunate if, in fact, she's trying to say that. That uh, the, uh, Maasai are giving up cattle grazing to raise, you know, to, to be, be involved tourist. in tourism. I mean, that's not what we want, and 
No, that's not a very good solution. <laughs> Metame, what are your thoughts on, on the climate problems and challenges? Uh, well, I think I, I agree with what Kurt just said. Um, the drought situation is pretty bad. I just got back from Kenya, and the drought situation is pretty bad throughout the country. Um, it's not true, Maasai uh, giving up, um, mm -hmm. keeping livestock uh, in, in place of uh, making an income from or making their living from tourists. Your, really. your, your culture so, is not in, uh, hoping no. to become a tourist attraction. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's it's no. not a very good future to hope for. No. Uh, Christina, thanks for your call. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to talk just a bit about safaris here. How do you care if somebody's thinking of going on a safari? Is that a politically correct term? Is that what you call it when you sure. go to see the animals? Mm -hmm. We're going on a safari to Africa. Do you wear a pith helmet and a, and a khaki shirt with lots of pockets? Some do because they <laughs> want to live that full dream. That's their dream. <laughs> Livingston, I pre Stanley Livingston, and I then, presume, and, or and they might go to places where you know the staff wears white gloves. I mean, there's still that still exists. That colonial. Oh, is that right? Safari stuff, right? High colonial tourism. Yeah. Whoa. Now, uh, first of all, just really quickly, how how would you compare? Eastern Africa with Southern Africa safaris. Is that the, the basic decision people yeah. have? Yeah. Pros uh, and cons. Well, East Africa has more cultural opportunities, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Southern Africa, you typically go out more on private nature concessions. So you may be out in this area and there may be you know, only you and the other guests that are there at the time, maybe 8 to 16 people. So uh, is it uh, from an animal point of view, is it uh, the same or is there a little better in the south and you, and you don't have the cultural? Element? Good wildlife viewing in both places. In eastern Africa, you see vast herds, you know, especially if you're around the migration and the Seren Mara Serengeti ecosystem. In, in southern Africa, you do a lot more walking safari, so you're actually literally more on the ground. I mean, you still have walking opportunities in East Africa, but it's a, more of a tradition in southern Africa. And finally, I guess I would say that, generally speaking, you use more open vehicles in southern Africa, whereas in, in East Africa, in the parks especially, it's closed vehicles. Why? T tradition, regulation in parks. Safety? Not really. I mean, okay. no, no more. You don't get people eating up more in Southern Africa than <laughs> East Africa. <laughs> so it's pretty it's rare, anyways. <laughs> pretty rare. Oh, okay. Uh, what about uh, you know uh, the season concerns? Is it um, is there a time you want to do that and a time you want to avoid? Yeah, there are rainy seasons in each in each part of the, each region, so you just need to be aware of you know what they are. So generally, what's the best time to go on a safari? Well, in Eastern Africa. Um, What's the Ma March through um, July is actually the best time to go. March mm -hmm. through July in yeah. East Africa. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in the south, would it be similar? Southern Africa. Se uh, September yeah, through January or March. I'm very concerned about the desertification of Africa. Is that what it's, is it the, the way sure. you say that? The growing desert. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's on your mind, Metame? Uh, it's just this desert gets closer and closer every year. Um, yes, it's actually not just Africa. I think there's, there's overall uh, concern about global warming and uh, general changes in weather patterns. Um, in, in Africa, yes, desertification is, is becoming a huge problem. And I think the United Nations is actually recognizing this and um, is taking steps to try and, um, you know, control desertification. Is it like complaining about the tide or is it something you can actually change? Well, you can by, through a variety of ways, like planting of trees, p protecting the forest cover in, in the various countries and so forth. Right. Specifically in East Africa, you have Mount Kilimanjaro, which is a major source of water for you know much of the uh, lowland areas, and we know we're losing glaciers there. So it'll be without glaciers in the foreseeable the, future. Yeah. Wow. We'll continue our discussion of the Maasai in East Africa with Kurt and Matami in a moment as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling in East Africa. I've got with me Kurt Kutai, who runs a company called Wildland Adventures. Kurt's website is wildland.com, and Kurt's uh, Maasai friend, Metame Depash. Kurt and uh, Metame, when we're talking about traveling in Maasai land, either in Tanzania. Is it Tanzania or Tanzania? Tanzania. Tanzania. Is yes. Tanzania wrong? No, not wrong. It's just co more correct. to Two to different ways. Tomato, yeah. tomato. Tanzania, Tanzania. Yes. I'm, I'm glad it's... I'm not stressed out now because there's not... You don't need to worry about that one. <laughs> Kenya, Kenya. Mm -hmm. What is it? Kenya. Kenya, okay. And Maasai land is uh, ignoring those modern European borders. And correct. And uh, spilling over between the two. If you're traveling in Maasai land, uh, first of all, Health precautions, simple common sense for traveling the developing world, uh, diarrhea concerns, don't eat fresh vegetables, don't eat uh, 
um, like lettuce and uh, uncooked uh, actually, vegetables. Actually, or when you, if you're going to be on a safari in a camp, you can, you, you can always eat the vegetables because they, they purify them too. Okay, so it's purified. And yeah, it's, can, it's a matter of whether you're in the marketplace or you know, where food hasn't been pr- properly prepared, you have to take real precautions. Uh, mosquitoes, bugs, malaria... There's malaria, and it's a part of the world where you do want to take precaution. Generally speaking, if you're there as a visitor, and use repellents to minimize your, you know, exposure so to bites. Repellents, uh, nets, and uh, it's not bad. I mean, it's not terrible. You don't need to wear head nets over you. I mean, right. there's not, mosquitoes are much worse in Michigan in the backyard in the summertime than they are in Africa. Do you take medicine before your trip to get uh, sure. malaria mm-hmm. f- figured out? And then, what about the general cost if you're traveling independently? Well, you know, you got about a fifteen to twenty-five hundred dollar airfare, depending on the season. Right. And then you have about maybe independently, you know, hundred dollars a day, I suppose. That would be with a car and with uh, Mm -hmm. admission to the national parks and some fancy tours. Yeah, if you're you're on, if you're kind of on the cheap, I'd say. You know, otherwise our trips generally are two hundred to three hundred dollars a day typically, but you can go up to four and five hundred dollars. Okay, so you'll pay two thousand bucks to get from the United States over to Kenya and back, and then a couple hundred dollars a day for a tour, or a hundred dollars a day on your own. Mm, More or less. All right. And uh, Doris is on the phone from Arcadia in California. Hi, Doris. Hi, Rick. Hi. Well, you've just been my favorite person the last 20 years. Our children say that you have to spend their inheritance and everything oh, with all your books. poor kids. <laughs> well, thank you for having the wisdom to spend your children's inheritance on travel. <laughs> and we were down to Long Beach Travel Show the last couple of years and got to see you and talk to you, too. Oh, I love to go to the uh, Long Beach Travel Show that on every chance I get. Uh, it's an enthusiastic crowd of travelers in the L.A. area. Have you been to the yes. Maasai region? Yes, we have. We were in uh, Kenya and Tanzania a couple of years ago, and we, were, we had the fortunate... Uh, time to go out to the Maasai village near the Norangora crater. And um, there was about eight of us. It was a small group, and we went with a lady in San Diego that she um, takes tours over there, just small groups from here, and she's an you know, expert person to go with. Well, we were visiting one of the villages one day, and being a photographer bug and everything, I was just clicking all these pictures of children, the people, and a man tapped him on the shoulder and wanted to know if I would like to go see his uh, home. And he introduced himself to me as the chief of the camp at the village. And so I was just so excited and everything. So I started following him and going in. And, of course, it's getting darker and darker. And I got a little anxious, you know, because all of a sudden I realized I was by myself. So this man in the village invites you to his house. Yes. And it, it, it's sun setting, and it's a humble village, and you're alone in his house. Yes, and he, you know, and of course your eyes, it's very difficult to adjust if it comes from outside the light. So bright, because it's dark. There's, I mean, there's no windows. All there is is just a little square at the very top, at the roof of the, you know, with a hole where the right. light comes in. And he's, you know, he shows me where the cows are kept at night, where he sleeps at night and everything. And... I was kind of getting a little anxious because I was the only one in there, <laughs> you know, and not knowing that all of a sudden I'm going, where's my husband at? He's always usually at my side to be with me. And he, all of a sudden he goes, where's Doris at? Because she's so adventurous and everything. And someone says, well, I did see her go in that hut over there. And he was, what he was doing was buying one of the gourds that, that he used to store the blood in. And so then, all of a sudden, he did appear in there. But it was very interesting. You know, they showed us where you know the campsite, you know, where they where they just sit. Now, basically. Were, you, were you just wandering through a village on your own, or did no, you? No, we were with this small group of the lady from San Diego that takes you know uh, okay. tourists over there. She's been a guide or um, a travel agent for twenty years, and she mainly did Africa, you know, in South Africa. To me, it sounds like a rich opportunity. And uh, is it really accessible if you've got a guide who knows the oh, et- yes. etiquette and so on, where you can actually meet people and they can take you into their home? And, oh, and you... definitely. I mean, we uh, it was probably one of the highlights of my travels and everything in the last 20 years. Wow. We were t- in the pictures, and, you know, they loved you, they hugged you, they were so happy to see you. Wow. And the children and everything... They just were in awe, of course, with, you know, seeing our light skin and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think too many, um, you know, the visitors were going to that particular village that we were at. And she, being an expert and having traveled there for 20 years, befriended many of these people and was able to take us, you know, Now, did there. you feel like they were sort of just set up with tea and trinkets to sell you and every mm, six hours no, there was a I group coming so. through? 
No, so they you really were sort of an event in that we town. We were, yes, we were. So there's definitely. a huge difference to me that way. Sometimes you think you're in these exotic places and you realize time to go, another bus is coming. You know. No, there were no buses there. Wow. No so. buses. What about the lang- What about the language barrier? None whatsoever. You mean Maasai people in the villages speak English? Speak English. Oh, yeah. I, the, like the chief that took me in. Oh, that I was, was the able chief. I understand him completely. The chief, the of the chief took you home. <laughs> he took me home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've got stories to tell. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, thanks for your uh, sharing your experience. Oh, yes. And they're wonderful people. And you know what? We're ready now to plan another one, hopefully in 2007, to go back. Because once you've been to Africa... You can't get a lot of your blood. That's you know, really true, isn't it? You know, it? I hear that so much, and <gasps> I've never been to su- sub-Saharan Africa, but, I mean, there's some, especially uh, the Maasai culture in, in Kenya and so oh, on. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I, the I animals, hear that the all people. The, time. And the I Maasai think were beautiful people. The approach you did, I think, is, is good, is to, if, to look for specialized companies, and oftentimes you will find a person that has their own little company, and they take people, and they do have their own personal connections, oh, yeah. and that typically can be a much better approach than a bigger company. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think that's true. Definitely. That's you, true. And you, the, the bigger companies and everything, can, you know, they can only go so many miles a day with their Jeeps. Yeah, of, there's a, fewer limitations they put on the vehicles. They put limitations. Well, this company and everything had no limitations. Made we were out there in the bush and everything, nighttime, daytime, everything. You felt safe? Oh, oh. Oh, very. I felt safe with the big daddy lion sitting right next to me and everything. <laughs> I was never afraid, never. So, Doris, you were you were combining the cultural experience with the natural experience? Exactly. And how was the animal end of it, the natural wildlife? And so oh, on? it's unreal, oh. unreal. When you bring home 36 rolls of 36 film at that time, we didn't have a digital. Right. I mean, you know, that's, that's your picture. <laughs> that's great. Well, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. It's, it's always just... a pleasure to see you and talk to you and oh, everything, well, too. Thanks for And uh, tell Kurt, we love his country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doris. You're welcome. Okay. Metame, any other comments about Doris's experience and meeting well, the Well, I think I'm, I'm really impressed the way she went about it. She went with a smaller company, which is sensitive to the culture of the people, um, and, uh, you know, on a program that combines culture and wildlife. Yeah. I think that is what, what is really the trend right now in the modern tourism um, industry. I think that's uh, thoughtful travel, really. I mean, you can go in a garish kind of way, and it's just like going to the zoo, or you can actually have a... a a life-changing experience, like apparently she had. She's got a whole different empathy for Africa now. That, that's right. And to gain an empathy for Africa, that's, what, that's, that's worth the price of admission right there. And what we're doing, for example, with our Maasai Land Safari is taking that, the, that goodwill that people have and turning it into uh, building wells, uh, supporting schools, you know, so that people can maintain a connection by uh, supporting the places that they visited. What about that? In a village in, in um, Maasai Land, what do you call Maasai Land? Is there a word for that? That's the Maasai land. Maasai land. Oh, yes. good. Okay. Mm-hmm. In, in a village in Maasai, because I don't want to say Kenya, because mm-hmm. it's really oblivious Correct. to the modern political border that some Europe, King Leopold in Belgium drew for you, you know. Uh, but so Maasai land. Take a village in Maasai land. Uh, do some villages not have uh, a well where they have to walk every day for water? Oh, yes. Like um, you heard the first call when she was talking about the drought in Amboseli and mm-hmm. that uh, the government is allowing people to bring cattle into the park and so right. forth. Actually, some women, um, some Maasai women have to walk up to 15 kilometers just to get 20 liters of water. See, my under- is that what a woman can carry back to the village is 20 liters then? Yes. Four, that, four gallons, that's a lot to carry. It yeah. is a lot. I, I think of a five-gallon army can or something, and that's a heavy can of water. Yeah. Right. right. So a woman walks uh, eight miles, uh, gets five gallon, four gallons of water, and then walks six or eight miles home so their family has enough water for today. And uh, that's not unusual. I think that's the average lot in life for a lot of women on, and I say women because women have to do this on this planet, walking for water and walking for firewood. Exactly. And it's getting worse, not better. Right. Now, what would it cost to dig a well in a community that has its women right now walking every day for water? Well, the average cost of uh, sinking a water well right now is about $26,000. Twenty six thousand dollars. If you do it uh, through a professional engineering company, and then it gives, and then that community will have running water. Yes. So that's about the cost of six suburban Seattle children's braces. So they have straight teeth digging a well, so an entire community will have running water. Not that we shouldn't have straight teeth on our children, but there is enough money where if we get uh, if we get an empathy, if we get exposed and turned on to the 
the, the humanity of this planet, we can make huge differences. And that's one thing I love about the work that you do, Kurt, is you take people to broaden their um, understandings of places that really are Wildland Adventures. That's your the name of your company. So right. well, wildland.com to learn more about Kurt Kutai's uh, work. We have uh, Bia on the line from uh, White Bear Lake in Minnesota. Hi, Bia. Jamboni. Jumbo. What? Jumbo? Jumbo. What, what is this? It's hello. hello in Swahili. Oh, really? Okay. Do Maasai people speak Swahili? Uh, some. Is some. that the is that the the the, the first language or Th- that's a national language? Okay, but no, but, 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 but the Maasai speak Ma. 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 Okay, but a Maasai person would learn Swahili, Swahili to have a bigger circle of people he can communicate with. Yes, in the country, yes. And then English would be the modern language for people even in the villages. Well, not not typical in the villages, but it's a business language in Kenya, being a okay. former British colony, you know. So, B, you learned a little bit of the uh, Swahili while you were there then, huh? A little bit, yes. We had the good fortune that uh, we went to spend nearly a month with my husband's cousin who was in Peace Corps there. And she had been there for a year. She spoke uh, Swahili uh, fluently, and she also learned some Kukuyu because she was working with Kukuyu people as a teacher. And so we had the opportunity and good fortune to meet many people individually through her. Well, you had a month then? Uh, three and a half weeks, roughly, yes. And how was your and experience? It was an incredible, life-changing type of experience. Come on, um, I just have people it. from the uh, tourist board calling here. Are you, it's amazing how everybody loves Kenya. <laughs> we did a combination. Because we were visiting with her, um, we spent time on our own with her, um, with, not within the tour. And then we did two safaris, photographic safaris, one to treetops and the other one down to Masai Mara. And, and did, we even rented a car and drove around. You drove um, for yourself then? Yes, we did. And we, right, had, we had her basically as a guide because well, you had she a Peace knew Corps the country. There, yeah, that's like your own guide. The Peace Corps yeah, workers would know absolutely. the ins and outs. She took us right, when we wanted soapstone, she took us right to Kisi. Well, what would you advise for somebody who doesn't have a, a local contact like that to enjoy an intimate and meaningful experience in uh, Maasai land? Well, I, would, I was listening to the woman who was there before. If there was a type of tour that, or an individual driver that could take you there, right. I think um, the less of a large group, the better, because you want to have the opportunities to meet with people one-on-one and not meet, be invasive. Did you meet people, and did you feel uh, not invasive? Um, we met, met many, many people, and there was many different ways to meet people, um, going to restaurants, even going to uh, a movie in Nairobi and learn that they laugh at different parts of an American movie than we did, and, and huh. just some one-on-one opportunities to talk with people, uh, invited into their homes, um, now, I, do you get a, if you just watch the news, you just feel like the whole continent is in desperate straits. Do you, are you just sort of immersed in a lot of chaos and, and squalor and desperation, or is life a celebration and you can travel comfortably? When we were there, yeah. um, we, like I said, we rented the car, and we saw a variety. It all depends on what part of the Kenya we were in. So in, in um, Nairobi, for instance. Nairobi has a, um, when you're first there, if you get into the heart of it, it looks like many modern cities. And as you move to the outer parts, you um, identify that there's more cultural difference and and diversity as far as economics. Um, One of the things that I saw and and learned is that no matter what the economics, there was a personal pride and honor and just energy and welcomeness of everybody. Hmm. And a joy. So, and, which just transcended all uh, economic status or, or circumstances. I, I, I picture a lot of visitors can get swept up in the joy that Kurt mentioned in the music and the dancing and so on. And, and, and based on what you just were talking about, it's the joy of the local people, too. I think the appreciation for life, you know, Absolutely. in spite of their circumstance. B, did, B, was it, B uh, tell me just about uh, your health. Did you have any problem with your health there? Um. Well, we, had, we were prepared because we knew we were going to be there a long time and, and going into places where, you know, the local, you know, most common tourists were going, not going to be. Right. We had brought along enough uh, sulfa drugs and stuff like that. So there was a couple of times we had just the beginnings of some discomfort or illness, but Does that when mean, we had uh, sulfa, di- we were fine. You're talking about just uh, you took things to try to keep you from getting diarrhea? Yep. 
And did you get diarrhea, if you no. don't mind me asking on radio? No, no, not at all. <laughs> you never did? Okay. <laughs> well, and, it's, and that was because when we felt any type of you know, illness you coming on, we would just take the sulfur and we were fine. Well, that was good. And, and uh, the interesting thing is that between the three of us traveling, um, our cousin who had been there for a year, she took no precautions. Well, yeah, My husband took all the precautions, and I was just kind of in between, and we all were the same. <laughs> Kurt, on your tours, when you take soft Americans over there, do they generally get through the trip uh, healthy, or do they all have a little bit of the uh, runs? Oh, you can get the runs uh, here and there, you know, on occasion. I mean, I sort of think of it like Mexico maybe 20 years ago. I mean, it's not really right. serious. Uh, so a couple yeah. of days, you're you're back on target. Yeah. And, uh, B, what about the cost? You are on your own there. Is it, like, dirt cheap, or in order for you to be safe and comfortable, you're paying basically American or European prices? Well, it all depends on where you stayed, number one and what, what level you you chose to be in. Um, when we first were booked in the first night into uh, Continental in downtown Ken, uh, Nairobi, that was quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, but then we went um, to the hotel that um, the Jacaranda, where our cousin would go all the time. They help out Peace Corps. And we were just as comfortable there and at a much more moderate, lower price. So I think you can find a variety Okay, but you go down. Let's say you go down the street and you find a restaurant that's filled with local people. What would you spend for dinner? Oh, it wasn't expensive. Right. The, the, mainly, the bit most expensive was flying over there. Sure. The cost of that, but yeah, I, I would. And the type of eating that we did too was, um, we ate a lot of roadside. Uh, pick up a samosa. Pick up uh, some fresh fruit because you can find fresh fruit everywhere. Yeah. And so that's a lower-cost way of doing it and some right. wonderful, wonderful food. Good. All right. B from Minnesota, thanks for your call. Certainly. Okay. Happy travels. Thank you. And I'm talking with uh, Metame Dapaj. Do I have your name right now, Metame? You've got it right. All right. Mm-hmm. Teach me. I didn't know this, but the Maasai language is Ma. Ma, yes. And, and, the, and the big language in that area is Swahili. Swahili, yes. Teach me the key three or four words in, uh, if I'm traveling. How do I say hello? How do I say goodbye? And thank you. Jambo, Kwaheri, Asante. Jambo, Kwaheri, Asante. Now that's Swahili. Now say the Ma. That's Swahili. In Ma is Sopa. Sopa. Olesere. Olesere. Ashe. Ashe. So there's no, uh, there's no, like, it's not like, a, they're not the same family not language. All, no. Not at all. Two different languages. So if I'm going to the Maasai land, I can say Sopa for hello. Yes, Sopa. And Olasa. Olesere. Olesere for goodbye. Yes. And how do I say thank you? Ashe. Ashe. Yeah. Meteme Dapash from Masailand. Ashe for helping us. And uh, Kurt Kutai from Wildland Adventures, thank you for giving us an insight into East Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.